Well, do you love that song yet? You know, the deeper uh, we get into the book of Lamentations, the more, uh, to me, it sounds like the perfect theme song. Because at the end of the day, that's all we have. It's a plea for mercy because of what we deserve. And so I want to invite you to take your Bibles and turn to Lamentations chapter 3. And if you've been tracking with us through this this short, sad little book, as I've been calling it, you know that chapter 3 is the longest chapter of the five chapters. In fact, I'm not kidding, last night I had a nightmare about preaching this morning. Pastors get nightmares like that. And so I was apparently subconsciously thinking about how am I ever going to get through all this in one message. And so I dreamt that I was preaching and I was not finished with my sermon and I looked up and the music team had come up to the front here and they were like, we're done. We're ready to sing the closing song. And I'm like, thinking, well, I'm not done. And I was like, well, maybe I can get one more point in. And I remember my daughter, Hannah said, dad, don't do it. She said that to me in my dream. Dad, don't do it. And I did it anyway. I put my head down and I just, you know, and then it started raining. And I don't know what the deal with that was, but it started raining. And, and, and then I got done with my point. I was like, kind of proud of myself. They got one more point in. And I looked up and everybody was gone. <laughs> They're like, we're done. Okay. You had your time. It's raining. We're out of here. And so I'm hoping and praying that there'll be some of you left here after, you know, by the time I'm done. So anyway, we're glad that you're here. We're glad that we get to jump back into uh, Lamentations. Well, I assume most of you have heard of or perhaps even seen the classic movie, The Shawshank Redemption. It has a captivating storyline. An unpretentious young banker named Andy Dufresne is sentenced to two consecutive life terms in prison for allegedly murdering his wife and her lover. He's sent to a rough prison where he forms a friendship with a hardened veteran inmate named Red. They encourage one another throughout their days to not lose hope in the midst of the brutality of prison life and that no matter how bleak their circumstances to keep believing that things can and will get better. Well, after enduring all sorts of adversity and mistreatment by his fellow inmates and guards even uh, for close to 20 years, Andy uh, is finally able to escape and he hides some money and a letter for Red on the outside so that they can meet up if, if and when he's ever uh, paroled. Well, Red eventually does get released. He's able to find the money and he reads the letter that Andy wrote to him, which concludes with probably the most famous line in the movie. And there sits Red reading the letter, and this is how it ends. Andy wrote this. Remember, Red, hope is a good thing, maybe the best of things, and no good thing ever dies. Hope is a good thing, maybe the best of things, and no good thing ever dies. I think you would agree with me that hope is the one thing that keeps us going amid the adversity and difficulty that we all face in this life. That's what causes us to endure and persevere in times of distress and times of despair. In fact, uh, Paul described the fruit of the salvation of the Thessalonian believers with this simple phrase, your endurance inspired by hope. Without hope, life can become very discouraging, very disheartening, very depressing, and even at times we're tempted to think that we would be better off dead. It's not uncommon to meet people who who have completely lost hope, even the most godliest of people. Elijah, for example, in 1 1 Kings 19, you remember when he killed all the prophets of Baal on Mount Carmel and their high priestess Jezebel, the sweet gal she was, uh, said, uh, I'm going to kill you. I'm going to take my revenge on you. I'm going to kill you. And so he fled for his life, found a place to hide under a juniper tree, and just said, God, you know, I'm done. Just kill me. 
And an angel of the Lord came and gave him something to eat and put him to, gave him a nap, right? And he woke up and he was refreshed and he went on his way. Sometimes that's all it takes, right? Is maybe you're overtired, right? Maybe you're, you know, you need to get a little something to eat, a little some nourishment, right? Um, another example would be Martin Luther. Uh, during a particularly difficult period in his life and ministry, he was carrying all sorts of burdens, fighting many battles, and usually he was jolly and, and smiling all the time, and yet now he was overwhelmed with anxiety. he became become very depressed, which Catherine von Bora, his wife, graciously endured for days. Eventually, however, she got fed up with his uncharacteristic demeanor, and so she came to breakfast one morning wearing a black dress, like one you would wear to a funeral. And so Luther looked up at her and said, who died? And she said, God. And he said, you foolish thing, why this foolishness? She says, it's true, God must have died or you would not be so sorrowful. Well, her unorthodox therapy worked. And Luther snapped out of that season of depression. But just like Luther, I think we're all guilty at times of losing sight of God in the midst of life's pressures and problems. And when we lose sight of God, we lose hope because God is the source of hope. Paul said in Romans 15, 13, now may the God of hope fill you with all joy and peace in believing so that you will abound in hope by the power of the Holy Spirit. So hope is found in God and the primary means by which God provides us hope is through his word. Romans 15, 4, Paul says this, for whatever was written in earlier times was written for our instruction so that through perseverance and the encouragement of the scriptures, we might have hope. Well, guess what? Lamentations was one of those things written in earlier times, written for our instruction so that we could be encouraged to have hope. And so not only does God give us promises in the scriptures, he also provides us people in scripture who experience similar things that we go through and sometimes even worse than we experience and, and how they successfully overcame them. First uh, Corinthians 10, 13, I love what Paul said there, no temptation, no trial has overtaken you but that which is what? Common to man. You're not the only one going through what you're going through. Now, we learned in 1 Peter chapter 5, verse 9, that we are to resist Satan, remaining firm in our faith, knowing that the same experiences of suffering are being accomplished by your brethren who are in the world. Well, guess what? Jeremiah is one of our brethren from whom we can draw encouragement and who should instill hope in our hearts. Because here in Lamentations, this spirit-inspired hymn of heartbreak, you could call it, we are given a glimpse into the heart of this godly man during the darkest hour of his life. And his response to the destruction of Jerusalem, the deportation of Judah as punishment for their sinful rebellion against God, really serves as a model of how to grieve with hope when we're overwhelmed with heartache and feel like we're drowning in the depths of despair, particularly when we're grieving over the consequences of our own sinful choices. In other words, how not to lose hope even when we've messed up our lives due to our sin. Now, you may, may remember me saying in the opening message of, of this series on Lamentations that Jeremiah used an acrostic format in writing these five songs. In other words, every verse... In each chapter, except for the last chapter, corresponds to the letters of the Hebrew alphabet. Now, there's 22 verses in chapter 1, chapter 2, chapter 4, and they all start with a different letter of the alphabet, kind of from the letter A to the letter Z. Here in chapter 3, which is the longest chapter in the book, has three times as many verses, and, and, and uh, Lim, uh, Jeremiah uses a triplet format here, where the first three verses all start with A, if you will, in the Hebrew language. The next three verses all start with B. So he triples things up here. 
which I think clearly indicates that, that Jeremiah intended this to be the high point of Lamentations. This is the climax or the summit of this book. And if you remember, I said uh, it's kind of like a staircase, chapter 1, chapter 2, chapter 3, and then chapter 4, and then chapter 5. So, so we've reached the top of the staircase this morning. And, and this is really also the centerpiece and the crown jewel of Lamentations. I mean, this is what we've been digging for. This is what we've been mining for. And we're going to find here the treasure of Lamentations this morning in this, in this section. And, and again, just like uh, Hebrew poetry, the most important truths are, are contained in the center uh, of the song or the poem. Now, I mentioned uh, that this acrostic format was used uh, really to aid in memorizing and retaining the content or sequence of some written or oral material. Um, but I agree with Walt Kaiser in his commentary, Grief and Pain in the Plan of God. He said that really can't be the only reason why um, Jeremiah used this. He goes on to say this. Rather, he says, the purpose was to make sure that the grounds of the grief and suffering were worked through completely. No fact should be left out. Every detail of the human tragedy must be itemized and expressed completely. The acrostic is a structure for taking suffering seriously. It goes over the story again and again and again and again and again, five times. And I mentioned this, that it was kind of suffering from A to Z, right? But this is very insightful, what he adds. He says it also sets the boundaries to suffering so that mortals are not left forever numb and mute in the horrid face of jumbled confusion that evil has introduced into their lives. The final letter, Z, right, will come and so will the end of this sorrow. Nothing troubles the sufferer more than the feeling of the endlessness of one's ministry. There, the acrostic will help to itemize, organize, and finalize the grief. In these lamentations, Jeremiah seeks to keep us from despair under the burden of an unutterable woe. So he doesn't want us to, to come to the point of utter despair, where we're just like, what's the use? Why go on? And, and this is helpful to be reminded of at this point, because up to this point, Jeremiah has done nothing but express just that, unutterable woe, as he lamented God's wrath being poured out on his city and on his people. It's like he's sitting there surveying ground zero and just the carnage of the destruction of the Babylonians. Some of you may be familiar with Rembrandt's painting of this. It's a classic portrait of Jeremiah. And he depicted Jeremiah sitting alone in what appears to be a cave on a hillside overlooking Jerusalem. And he's leaning on a Bible, and he's surrounded by a few remaining vessels from the temple that the Babylonians didn't take away with them. And behind him is the ruined temple still smoldering. But nowhere in the painting did Rembrandt include any sign of hope that we're about to see in this chapter. If I were Rembrandt, and I am no Rembrandt, I would have somehow painted perhaps a sun coming up over the horizon to provide a, a contrast of, of comfort and, and hope to this desperate, depressing scene. That, that's sort of the point of this video, or this video, this picture here of a, of a sun rising over a, a barren wasteland and the hope, right, that, that you will rise again, right? There's a little flower budding there coming up. Paul said it well in Romans eleven twenty two. He said, behold the kindness and the severity of God. So far, we've just seen the severity of God in chapters one and two. This morning, we're going to get to see the kindness of God. Well, this chapter breaks up into three sections. Uh, we could call it the prophet's pain, verses one through 18, the prophet's portion, in verses 19 through 38, and then the prophet's prayer in verses 39 to 66. So let's look at each of these three sections one at a time. First of all, the prophet's pain. And before we read this first section, uh, 
you need to know that Bible scholars split into two camps over this chapter. Some say it reveals Jeremiah's personal uh, struggles, his personal experiences, whereas others suggest that he simply is speaking on behalf of Jerusalem. And it is a bit confusing because he goes back and forth between I and me and, and we and us. And, it, it, and for that reason, specifically, I, I think that it's best to consider that this is not an either or, but it's a both and. In other words, what Jeremiah experienced personally paralleled and personified much of Jerusalem's experience. Walt Kaiser put it this way. He said, Jeremiah is that individual who suffers in many ways beyond all others, but he is also the representative sufferer for all Israel by virtue of his role as the prophet of the Lord who pled with, prayed for, and preached to his people Israel. Because of the prophet's delegated representative role, he can pass easily from his own sorrows to those of his nation. His sorrows both represent and summarize all of his nation's sorrows. He has indeed become sort of an everyman. And that is where we come in. He's referring to us here. So we will see ourselves and our own problems with suffering. So as we read through this description in verses 1 through 18 of, of Jeremiah's pain, um, you may see yourself in these verses. Look at verse 1. Jeremiah says, I am the man who has seen affliction because of the rod of his wrath. Babylon was the rod of God's wrath to punish Judah for the rebellion against him. And and the, the, the tragic re events that Jeremiah has been describing here so far would have never happened if the people had just listened to him and obeyed God's word. But they turned a deaf ear to him for 40 years, and his prophetic warnings of destruction came to fruition. And as a result, Jeremiah felt like a complete failure. What's worse, he felt like God, who at the moment of his calling had initially promised to stand by him and strengthen and support his ministry, that's Jeremiah chapter 1, by the way, now seems to have totally turned against him. He's actually become his enemy. And so this section is just filled with metaphors and vivid images used to describe the pain that he experienced both outwardly and, and internally. See if you can relate to any of this. Verse 2. He has driven me and made me walk in darkness and not in light. Surely against me he has turned his hand repeatedly all the day. He has caused my flesh and my skin to waste away. He has broken my bones. He has besieged and encompassed me with bitterness and hardship. In dark places, he has made me dwell like those who have long been dead. He has walled me in so that I cannot go out. He has made my chain heavy. Even when I cry out and call for help, he shuts out my prayer. He has blocked my ways with hewn stone. He has made my paths crooked. He is to me like a bear lying in wait, like a lion in secret places. He has turned aside my ways and torn me to pieces. He has made me desolate. He bent his bow and set me as a target for the arrow. He made the arrows of his quiver to enter into my inward parts. I have become a laughingstock to all my people, their mocking song all the day. He has filled me with bitterness. He has made me drunk with wormwood. He has broken my teeth with gravel. Jeremiah felt like he was chewing on rocks. He has made me cower in the dust. My soul has been rejected from peace. I have forgotten happiness. So I say my strength has perished and so has my hope from the Lord. It is difficult to imagine anyone being in a more desperate, depressed condition than Jeremiah. I mean, essentially, in verse 17, he said, I, I forgot what it was like to be happy. It's been so long since I've been happy. I forgot what it was like to be happy. And, 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 and I've, I've lost all hope. My, my hope has perished. I, I have no hope. I'm hopeless. And if you've ever experienced anything remotely similar to this, hopefully this is refreshing to you his raw honesty and transparency. It's always helpful to know that you're not alone. 
Whenever you feel overwhelmed with grief and you, you feel like you're in a hopeless situation, there's somebody who can relate. Jeremiah knows what you feel like. Well, that's the prophet's pain. Now let's look at the prophet's portion. The prophet's portion. And this is where we find the heart of this book. Verse 19. Remember my affliction and my wandering, the wormwood and bitterness. Surely my soul remembers and is bowed down within me. This I recall to mind, therefore I have hope. So here he was, Jeremiah was on the brink of utter despair, and he got to thinking about something that kept him from giving up. He remembered something that, that caused his soul to rise from the deep, dark pit that he was in to the highest mountain peaks. You're like, what is it? What, what, what did he remember that, that caused such a radical transformation. Verse 22. This is what he remembered. This is what he recalled to mind. <coughs> Excuse me. The Lord's loving kindnesses indeed never cease, for his compassions never fail. They are new every morning. Great is your faithfulness. The Lord is my portion, says my soul. Therefore, I have what? Hope in him. So he went from having no hope to now he's got hope again. And the answer, the key, the secret is in verses 22, 23, and 24. He remembered, he recalled to mind what he knew to be true about God. That God's love is unrelenting, unceasing. God's mercy is unfailing. God's faithfulness is unchanging or unwavering. And God's sufficiency is all satisfying. And so despite what he saw, despite how he felt, despite what he thought, he remembered these attributes of God, which are always true, by the way, and because they're always true, all hope is never lost. And so he not only remembered these attributes, I hope you notice here, he rehearses them to his heart. He rehearsed them to his heart. I recommended that you purchase Dark Clouds, Deep Mercy by Martin Rogop. How many of you guys... Grabbed a copy of that, maybe reading along with us in this study. This is what he says regarding Lamentations chapter 3. Jeremiah doesn't merely lament his pain and disappointment. Which, by the way, is part of the lament process. It's right and good and necessary to lament your pain and your disappointment, but if that's all you do, you are going to be in trouble. You're going to get stuck. Um, it's what's called self-pity, where you just become inwardly focused, and you can't get past yourself. That is part of the process, however. <coughs> it's the first half of the process, if you will, of grieving, he says, Jeremiah doesn't merely lament his pain and disappointment. He uses his song of sorrow to point his heart to what he knows to be true despite what he sees. This is where biblical lament is transformative. It not only gives voice to the pain you feel, but also anchors your heart to the truths you believe or are trying to believe when dark clouds linger. He says, loss can feel like a wasteland. It's devastating. But lament helps us to rehearse biblical truth so hope will return. Lamentation shows us that hope does not come from a change of circumstances. That's really helpful. Did you hear that? Lamentation shows us that hope does not come from a change of circumstances. If you're hoping that things will change, that could be a false hope. 
because things may not change here on this earth. It may not be until Jesus comes back, right, or until you get to heaven. But guess what? God is the ultimate source of hope. He says, rather, it comes from what you know to be true despite the situation in front of you. You live through suffering by what you believe, not by what you see or feel. And I love this line. He said this, in our laments, we express the sorrow we feel, but we also rehearse the truths we believe. Did you catch that? In our laments, we express the sorrow we feel, but we also rehearse the truths we believe. In lament, we are honest with the struggles of life while also reminding ourselves that God never stops being God. Amen? In other words, our hope is not that our circumstances will change for the better, but that God is good, or you could say God is better and God never changes. And I think Jeremiah is one of the best illustrations in the Bible of what can happen when we get our eyes off ourselves and our problems and get them back on God. One commentator said it this way, the prophet's mind and heart settle afresh upon the glorious divine attributes of God in their unchangeable beauty. When sin drives the soul from God, its hope perishes. Only as the soul returns to God is its hope restored. I think Jeremiah is also a stellar example of how to preach to yourself rather than to listen to yourself. Are you familiar with that concept? We, we spend our entire lives listening to ourselves. And, and, and our, we're, we're constantly telling ourselves things. And, and that usually gets us in places where we don't need to be or we, we shouldn't be. <laughs> we need to learn the art, the secret, if you will, of preaching to ourselves rather than listening to ourselves. And I think that's the secret here that Jeremiah shows us to regaining a proper perspective when we lose sight of God in the midst of the difficult circumstances of life. The psalmist is another good example. Psalm 42, verse 11, remember, he said this, Why are you in despair, O my soul, and why have you become disturbed within me? Do you see that? He's talking to himself. He's saying, hey, soul, what's up? Why are you so depressed? Why are you so down? Why is your countenance fallen? And then he preaches to his soul. He says, hope in God. Put your hope in God, for I shall yet praise him, the help of my countenance and my God. Warren Wiersbe said it this way, unbelief causes us to look at God through our circumstances, and this creates hopelessness, but faith enables us to look at our circumstances through the reality of God, and this gives us hope. Obviously, that line in verse 23, great is your faithfulness, is where we got the hymn. Great is thy faithfulness, O God, my Father. There is no shadow of turning with thee. Thou changest not. Thou compassions, they fail not. As thou hast been, thou forever will be. Great is thy faithfulness. Great is thy faithfulness. Morning by morning, new mercies I see. All I have needed, thy hand hath provided. Great is thy faithfulness, Lord, unto me. Pardon for sin and a peace that endureth. Thine own dear presence to cheer and to guide. Strength for today and bright hope for tomorrow. Blessings all mine with 10,000 beside. And that's a good theme song for Lamentations as well, right? The point is this. Whatever trials, whatever difficulties, whatever heartbreaks you might be facing, this passage is a reminder that God's promises are true, that his love never ends, his mercy never fails, his faithfulness never wavers, and his sufficiency never lacks. And again, because we know these things are always true of God, then we also know that all hope is never lost whether it's the death of a loved one, 
the death of a marriage, divorce, physical, emotional pain, suffering, a terminal diagnosis, any other tragedy you can think of, you can face that leads to a feeling of hopelessness or unhappiness, we need to remember that God is our portion, that God is enough. I love verse 24, the Lord is my portion, says my soul, therefore I have hope in him. Reminds me of uh, Asaph in Psalm 73 when he was, he was um, wrestling with God and envying the wicked because, God, it seems like you're blessing their lives more than mine. It seems like they've got life's way better off for them than for me, and here I'm trying to be faithful to you, and they're just, they could care less about you. I don't get it, God. And finally, it says he came into the presence of the Lord and kind of had an attitude adjustment, and, and this is what he concluded. Psalm 73, verse 25, whom have I in heaven but you, and besides you, I desire nothing on earth. My flesh and my heart may fail, but God is the strength of my, of my heart and my portion forever. So when God strips you of everything and all you have left is him, that's when you'll find that he's all you need. Well, let's go on. Verse 25. Jeremiah writes, The Lord is good to those who wait for him, to the person who seeks him. It is good that he waits silently for the salvation of the Lord. It is good for a man that he should bear the yoke in his youth. In other words, the best thing that, that we can do is to wait patiently and silently for the Lord to work and, as, and accomplish his will in his time. And notice the emphasis on good here. Three times he mentions the word good. In fact, in the Hebrew, the word good starts each one of those verses. And so this is not a, a passive, stoic waiting, but it's an active resting in the goodness of God with hopeful expectation that he's got everything under control and he's working out everything for his glory and our good. That's easier said than done. I don't know about you, but I hate to wait. It drives me crazy to have to sit still and not feel like I'm doing anything or getting anything accomplished or, or making any progress. I mean, we've all gotten stuck in the traffic out here on 105, I'm sure, as they're kind of redoing everything. And man, it just kind of comes up and all of a sudden everything goes down to one lane and you're stuck for like half hour. Well, I immediately get onto my phone and I start rerouting and figure out a way I can get out of here and just go. Even if it's going to take me an extra half hour to get wherever I'm going, at least I'm moving. At least I'm going somewhere. At least I'm making progress. I've had this sore throat for like two weeks, and like I'm okay with a sore throat. Just bring it on, but just let's, let's get rid of it quick too, God, okay? I don't want it to linger forever. And so I had one of my fellow pastors remind me this week that I don't do sick well. Ken, you don't do sick well because you, you, you're like you get frustrated and impatient, right, when you get sick. And it's true. Um, I've had the privilege of spending quite a few hours in the waiting room this past week. If you hadn't heard, my dad got into a fight with a table saw, kind of chewed up the end of a few fingers, and uh, so we've been down at the medical center in, in Houston getting him fixed up, and so, you know, you're in the waiting room, and, and I don't like the waiting room. My mom doesn't either because it's too cold, right? But, I mean, you just kind of sit around and you're just looking at the clock going, man, what is, what is, what is that guy doing in there, man? Can I come in and help? Can I, you know, can I hand you some instruments? Well, what do we got going here? Um, but what, what is up with waiting, right? And so many of us, right, we find ourselves in the waiting room of life and we don't like it. It's like, what's, what's up, God? Not the doctor. It's like, God, what are you doing here? How long is this going to take? Again, Dark Clouds, Deep Mercy, the author asks the question, why is waiting so difficult? He answers it. He says, because it feels as if we're not doing anything, and that's the point. You're not doing anything, but God is. 
However, waiting is one of the greatest applications of the Christian faith. You're putting your trust in God, placing your hope in him, and expressing confidence that he is in control. Waiting puts us in an uncomfortable place where we're out of control of our lives. That season is when God will shape and define us the most. And then he says this, rather than resisting this season, we can see waiting as an opportunity for life-changing lessons. And so through this God-ordained season of sorrow and suffering, Jeremiah learned some amazing truths about the nature of God. Look at verse 28. Let him sit alone and be silent. In other words, shut up and submit. Sorry for those of you that have kids that you said that was a swear word because that's what we told our kids. Can't say shut up. It's not kind, right? But essentially, Jeremiah is saying, right, let him sit alone and be silent since he has laid it on him. Shut up and submit. Let him put his mouth in the dust. Perhaps there is hope. Let him give his cheek to the smiter. Let him be filled with reproach, for the Lord will not reject forever. For if he causes grief, then he will have compassion according to his abundant loving kindness. For he does not afflict willingly or grieve the sons of men to crush under his feet all the prisoners of the land, to deprive a man of justice in the presence of the Most High, to defraud a man in his lawsuit. Of these things the Lord does not approve. So there's great lessons here about God's mercy and God's compassion and God's love and God's view of justice. And Warren Wiersbe just summarizes this section. He said this, the secret of victory in tough times is simply to submit to the Lord and let him do what seems good to him. We must bow before the Lord and submit to him without complaining, knowing that in his time, He will see us through. I think it's good to remember that God is never closer to us than when he chastens us. Matthew Henry, the great commentator of old, said this, quote, God's people may by faith see love in his heart even when they see a frown on his face and a rod in his hand. If there's any kiddos in here, you see dad coming. He disobeyed, he's disappointed, he's got a frown on his face and he's got the whacker in his hand or his belt in his hand, whatever he uses to spank you with and you're like, oh shoot, here it comes. But hopefully you see love, right? This is an act of love, he's love, he's coming after you because he loves you, he wants to rescue you from your rebellion against the Lord and from against your parents. And you're never closer to your parents than when you're getting spanked. And when the point is this, Right? I mean, we would always take some time with our kids to ask them, okay, did they understand what they did wrong and what did they deserve and, 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 and how many spanks they were going to get? And then when it was all over, what would we do? We would wrap them in our arms and let them cry, let them sob and, and, and just comfort them and encourage them and, and, and remind them of the gospel and then send them on their way, send them on their merry way. It's over. Let's move on. You're not in the doghouse, right? But there was a closeness that took place in that time of discipline. Again, dark clouds, deep mercy. God doesn't delight in the pain of his children. Rather, there are loving purposes behind every tear. There's a psalm that says that God preserves every one of our tears in a bottle. Isn't that precious? In other words, there's never a wasted tear. You never cry for no reason. Every one of your tears matters to God. You just can't see what what they are yet, the purposes of God, he says. You don't know the whole story of what God is doing. We have to believe his intentions are kind, that somehow pain and hardship are for our ultimate good. Rest assured that if you're a follower of Jesus, everything in your life is part of God's good purposes for you, lament can remind us that pain has a purpose and that God is always good. Look look what else he learned about God. Verse 37, he learned about God's sovereignty. Who is there who speaks and it comes to pass unless the Lord has commanded it? Is it not from the mouth of the Most High that both good and ill go forth? Go forth? 
So Jeremiah reaffirmed the, the sovereignty of God, that, that nothing occurs unless the Lord has decreed it beforehand. And this may sound a bit shocking because Jeremiah made no distinction like we so often feel the need to do between primary and secondary causes. We have to shield God from being the source of evil and all that stuff. And, and, and so we, we, we say these, well, primary cause, secondary cause. Well, everything comes directly from God's hand and he knows exactly what he's doing. And, and while we can easily attribute good things to the Lord, we're, we're, all, we're slow to attribute anything bad coming from the Lord. Kaiser said it well. He said, there is no wrong done on earth that falls outside the control of God. Man has no power and evil has no free reign to do as it pleases apart from the permitting or directing will of God. Yesterday, the men had the privilege of being reminded of the story of Joseph by our speaker at our man at breakfast, <coughs> Troy, ended with Genesis 50, 20. And this is what Joseph said to his brothers when he finally revealed himself to them. He said, as for you, you meant evil against me, but God meant it for what? Good in order to bring about this present result, to preserve many people alive. God was just using you to send me ahead so that I could save you guys from the famine in Canaan. How about Amos 3.6? When disaster comes to a city... Has not the Lord caused it? Job 121, the Lord gave, blessed be the name of the Lord. Is that what Job said? No, he said the Lord gave and the Lord taketh away, blessed be the name of the Lord. Job got it. His wife didn't. She told him, hey, why don't you just curse God and die? And Job 2.20, he said, you speak as one of the foolish women speaks. Shall we indeed accept good from God and not accept adversity? In all this, Job did not sin with his lips. Swindoll has a great summary of this section. He says, regardless of the adversity we suffer... A sound understanding of God will help ease our pain and provide us with hope. Without a clear grasp on who God is and how he relates to us, we are adrift on the sea of life, unprepared for the storms that are sure to strike us. However, the better we know God, the more equipped we are to weather whatever comes our way. A proper understanding of, God's, of God brings needed and reassuring perspective to life's pain. So the question is, how's your view of God? Do you have a, a low view of God or do you have a high view of God? Makes all the difference in the world. So we've seen the prophet's pain. We've seen the prophet's portion. And let's look quickly now at the prophet's prayer. The prophet's prayer. And again, this chapter, like the other chapters, ends with a prayer. This is a prayer for deliverance, a, a prayer for restoration, a prayer for vindication. Verse 39, why should any living mortal or any man offer complaint in view of his sins? I mean, we could just close in prayer right there. How, how could any complaint ever come out of our mouths in view of what we deserve because of our sins? And when suffering is deserved... Instead of complaining about our consequences, it should produce confession. And the sin that caused our suffering must be, must be acknowledged and repented of. One of the surest signs of genuine repentance is, your, is, is sorrow over your sin rather than sorrow over your consequences. How many times are we just sad about the consequences? But we're really not sad about the sin itself. One commentator said it this way, Judah's afflictions were not cruel acts of a capricious God who delighted in inflicting pain on helpless people. Rather, the afflictions came from a compassionate God who was being faithful to his covenant. He did not enjoy making others suffer, but he allowed the afflictions as temporary means to force Judah back to himself. 
God's affliction was designed as a corrective measure to restore his wayward people. It was designed to force the people to return to the Lord. Notice verse 40. Let us examine and probe our ways and let us return to the Lord. We lift up our heart and hands toward God in heaven. We have transgressed and rebelled. You have not pardoned. You have covered yourself with anger and pursued us. You have slain and have not spared. You have covered yourself with a cloud so that no prayer can pass through. You have made us a mere off-scouring and refuge in the midst of the peoples. All our enemies have opened their mouths against us. Panic and pitfall have befallen us. Devastation and destruction. My eyes run down with streams of water because of the destruction of the daughter of my people. My eyes pour down unceasingly without stopping until the Lord looks down and sees my he- from heaven. My eyes bring pain to my soul because of all the daughters of my city. And so here, Jeremiah charts the the pathway to blessing, and that's found in self-examination. Now that the worst has happened, they they needed to thoroughly examine and analyze their lifestyle and and do an about-face and and turn back to God. The the whole point of the destruction of Jerusalem and, and the deportation of Judah was to bring God's people to their knees in repentance, to cause them to confess their sins and to repent of their sins. And even though God had severely chastened his people for forsaking them or forsaking him, Jeremiah was confident that God would not forsake them. And if they searched their hearts and they sought his forgiveness, God would mercifully intervene and forgive and restore them. I love Psalm 30. Verse 4, sing praise to the Lord, you as godly ones, and give thanks to his holy name, for his anger is but for a moment. His favor is for a lifetime. Weeping may last for the night, but a shot of joy comes in the morning. Look at Psalm, or excuse me, verse 52. My enemies without cause hunted me down like a bird. They have silenced me in the pit and have placed a stone on me. Waters flowed over my head. I said, I am cut off. I called on your name, O Lord, out of the lowest pit. You have heard my voice. Do not hide your ear from my prayer for relief, for my cry for help. You drew near when I called on you. You said, do not fear. O Lord, you have pleaded my soul's cause. You have redeemed my life. So Jeremiah was recalling some of his own personal and um, trials and, and the merciful interventions of God in his life, like when he, the time he was thrown down into the pit because they didn't want to hear him anymore. Let's get rid of the prophet. Let's throw him down in the pit. Leave him, leave him to die. And he applies this figuratively to the nation. And just like God rescued him, God would rescue them. And just like God judged his enemies, so God would vindicate Judah and judge her enemies if they would call on him and return to him. Notice what he goes on to say in verse 59, O Lord, you have seen my oppression, judge my case. You have seen all their vengeance, all their schemes against me. You have heard their reproach, O Lord, all their schemes against me. The lips of my assailants and their whispering are, are against me all day long. Look on their sitting and their rising. I am their mocking song. You will recompense them, O Lord, according to the work of their hands. You will give them hardness of heart. Your curse will be on them. You will pursue them in anger and destroy them from under the heaven of the Lord. So Jeremiah got a little imprecatory there, praying God's judgment down on God's enemies. But again, I think he's a great example that despite all the wrongs done to him, all the lies told about him, he committed his cause to God. Kaiser said it this way, Jeremiah never once raised his own hand in vengeance for his personal tragedies and adversities. He was totally consumed with grief for God's people, God's city, God's temple, God's anointed, and in short, God's kingdom. It was God who had to be vindicated in all this mess, not Jeremiah. So here we see Jeremiah serving as God's delegated sufferer who suffered representatively on behalf of the nation of Judah. And he foreshadowed 
another prophet who would one day also suffer as the representative of his people. Who is that prophet? Jesus Christ. Jeremiah was the man who has seen affliction. That's how he introduced himself in this chapter. I am the man who has seen affliction. Guess what? Jesus was the man who saw affliction. We don't have time to read it, but you can maybe just write down in your notes Isaiah 53. Isaiah 53. And this is the classic text in the Old Testament about the suffering servant where Jesus is introduced or described as the man of sorrows who bore the rod of God's wrath as a representative for sinners like you and like me. Calvin suggested this prayer in his commentary on Lamentations. Grant, almighty God, that though thou chasten us as we deserve, that we may yet never have the light of truth extinguished amongst us, but may ever see, even in darkness, at least some sparks, which may enable us to behold thy paternal goodness and mercy, so that we may be especially humbled under thy mighty hand, and that being really prostrate through a deep feeling of repentance, we may raise our hopes to heaven and never doubt that thou will at length be reconciled to us when we seek thee in thine only begotten Son, Jesus. Amen. Our hope is ultimately found in none other than Jesus Christ. Let's pray. Father, we thank you that in times of trouble, particularly when our sin has brought misery into our lives, that a reminder of the hope of the gospel is what we need most. It's the one unfailing certainty in life is the good news, the hope of the gospel. And so, Lord, would you be gracious to us? Lord, I don't know where everyone's at this morning. Maybe some really couldn't relate much with what was being described here, but others are in the thick of it. And I just pray that you would help us to put into practice these truths. These are not easy truths to apply. And so would your spirit help us to do that, we ask. In Jesus' name, amen.